Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Imagine chopping your fingers off due to the pain of frostbite or even better, how about climbing to the top of Everest when you suffer from vertigo or even still doing seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. Today's guest, the epic and incredible Serrano Fines. His recent book, Fear, dealt with an issue that I struggled with as a kid, which is bullying. And if you suffered from bullying, you want to listen up to what Ranulph has got to say about how bullying affected him as a kid and how he used it as a force for good. Wow. Serrano Fines, thank you so much for coming on to my podcast and spending some time while you're here in Dubai. I genuinely really appreciate you doing that. No, well, thank you very much. For, I feel honoured that you should um, ask me, so thank you. You've been literally blowing our mind over all these years with your crazy adventures, stuff that really has, has got people sitting thinking, what on earth made him think of that? And then you've been threatened along the way by the Norwegians always trying to catch you out and trying to beat these adventures before before you get them is that happened kind of like in, in, recurringly or is it is it said a little bit in jest about the norwegians well you know we didn't when we started doing polar stuff know that the norwegians it was their particular niche and that they were dna wise extremely good at doing it for quite a long time we didn't really know that but then uh, back in the 70s uh, when the thing was to get as far as you could from land towards the North Pole without support by air or anything else like that and gradually it was increasing and increasing as different people did it. Um, I was with uh, South African Charlie Burton uh, on, we had just actually broken the existing world record towards the pole and the radio operator, my late wife, um, sent a message. The bloke I was with, Charlie Burton, uh, bless his soul, he's dead, um, was a little bit crude and he couldn't pronounce the name of the main Norwegian top polar man at the time, whose name was um, Ragnar Forthketh. And Charlie couldn't pronounce it, so we'll call him Forthkin. <laughs> and somehow or other, this, this had got out. And this newspaper, which was read out by my wife, was the Bergen's Tidender, the big Norwegian West Coast paper. And in it, it said, um, uh, yesterday, the Brits, Fines and Burton, beat the existing world record towards the pole, but our people under Ragnar are catching them up. And it then added, and this message came in Morse code from my wife, um, so you can imagine us receiving it, reading out the paper that she had, and it said, anyway, the Brits have taken a prostitute with them on their sledge, <laughs> which is total invention. Um, and there was, an, in those days, a newspaper in the UK called News of the World. Yeah. And it elaborated the Norwegian stuff and made it sound really, really bad. And um, we lost our two main British sponsors. So it, I think that was when the enmity um, crept in. Goodness me. I think, and listen to your books. But how many books have you written now? Two six. Do you enjoy the whole process of writing? Nobody pays you for doing the expeditions. So we've learnt, and Chris Bonington would, would agree, that the only way is you either lecture or write books or try and do both. And if you, I haven't done an expedition, 
then you're going to have to write a book about something else. And uh, recently I've done one on fear mm -hmm. by finding people that have experienced different 16 different types of real fear. Mm -hmm. And uh, for instance, one of them, I really was amazed. This student from Essex, uh, 22 years old, went as a medical student to Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. And suddenly a thing called Ebola cropped up and his nurse friends all around him were dropping in a horrible way, you know, yeah. dead. And he just stayed with it. Uh, and the fear grew and grew, you know, and he, and he found that in, they started having proper suits. The hazmat but, type but, things. But proper suits all over their bodies, uh -huh. the, the doctors and the medical students. But it got so hot out there with no air conditioning that they had to wipe out the sweat and all the rest of it. And any little invasion they didn't know about could next day the worms start and, and so on. And, you know, his, I couldn't believe, I would not have lasted like he did. And later in the UK newspapers, he was RAF'd back with Ebola in great um, cocoon stuff. Mm -hmm. And for somehow, for some reason, he was one of the tiny percent that survived. And then when all the newspapers were full of that Scottish nurse who came back, mm -hmm. uh, she survived because of his blood. I mean, trans for transfer. Uh, as an anti yeah. As an anti antidote, yeah. yeah, as an antidote to that. And that, you know, I just thought, what a brave bloke. Are you still alive now? Yeah. That is that is something quite... Um, you know, it's really interesting you say that because, uh, do you know, Ant Middleton, he wrote a book called The Fear Bubble recently. Now, he was special boat services um, in the military. And then in 2017, he climbed Everest. And he'd been in Afghanistan and Iraq and the various things that he'd done in the military over the years. And he learned to try and understand how we compartmentalized fear in his life. And so I don't let a simple example. If you're going for a skydive for the first time, you turn up at the skydive center and most people are rather worried. Yeah. Um, they put the harness on, they're now getting scared and they walk out to the airplane, they're very scared. On the plane, they're scared. But the only real danger comes when you jump out of the plane. Right. That's and true. so he was trying to get people to understand that there actually is no fear. There should be no fear where there is no danger. And if you, because your adrenaline is pumping when you're scared, if you learn how to manage when you literally step into fear, as in step into the danger, then you can make sure that the adrenaline pumps at that time and deal with it then and, and understand. So when he was mind sweeping in Afghanistan and stuff, it, it, again, it's like, where's the actual danger? And he really thought hard about everything he was doing about where the actual danger was and it helped him calm oh, okay, and deal with that fear. And so when I was listening to your book on fear and the different people that experience different fear, um, you talk about bullying. Bullying. And when you were a child, some things that happened yeah. to you, and those two guys, I forget their names. But, but now, of course, as I said in the book, it's much worse because of the... Um, Cyberbullying and... Uh, what do you call it? Web. Web. Inter Internet, yeah. yeah. Yeah, much worse. I mean, yeah. I didn't have the, the, the web when I was a kid, no, just me. like you no. didn't. No. And when you think about that fear that goes around bullying and you tell the story that you have around that, um, it takes me back to a place where I was bullied quite badly at school. But that bullying created this overwhelming desire to want to prove the bullies wrong at some point in my life. So all I wanted to do, and still to this day, there's an element of me that it's like, I'll show you. And right, I don't know. Right, does that make sense to you? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so those two, there were those two guys, that, that, the two lads that were in the, the kind of close to you when you were younger. 
and there were some bullies and they changed sides and they went, do you remember this? And they went and they, I forget their names, but you said you, said you hated their guts because of, of what they did. Uh, when I was very little? Yeah, when you were little, yeah. Um, uh, I almost on the tip of my tongue got the memory of the name of one of them as a sort of Jewish sounding name actually. Okay, and that, but do you remember what they did? They used to beat you with bamboo sticks. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember that. Uh, what was it? Guzman or something like that. Uh-huh. And uh, many, many years later, I wrote a book and talked about it. And he, someone had sent him a copy of the book. And I got a letter back saying that he had never bullied me. Really? Yeah. No way. There's somebody that communicated with me on social media that I accused of bullying me when I was young. And they said they didn't. And they said, no, that didn't yeah. take place. Whether, whether he genuinely had forgotten that he was like that or not, I don't know. Or whether he, he knew perfectly well and he was just denying it. Yeah, maybe. Now, you um, were bitten by a spider when you were down in South Africa when you were younger. Yeah, and then pajamas. Yeah, yeah, down the back of pajamas, which is kind of well documented. But I find it really interesting learning about when you were in Oman when the wolf spider. Was yeah, on your... well, there were wolf spiders and camel spiders, and they're both seven inches across with eyes and mandibles and all that. Yeah, and you sat there and you had to kind of like grin and bear it and not show not show you yeah. were scared. Yeah, that's in that fear book, is it? Yeah, the fear oh, book. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, well, the spider thing was forced confrontation. Uh-huh. I didn't want to confront it, but I did want to join the Omani army. And as it turned out, which I didn't expect, there were these dreadful, huge, you know, spiders. And I, I was still by then frightened of little English spiders, never mind dirty great things like that. <laughs> but slowly but surely, you learned they weren't biting you. And they're in your sleeping bag and all that before you, you know, so over a Two years, I lost the fear completely of spiders. That wasn't, that was subconscious, not conscious? That just kind of happened because of your... Well, the, the first horrific time when one crawled across me and, and was sitting around the fire with all these guys who were looking at me to see what I'd be like as the new boss. And I knew that they couldn't care a damn about these big spiders. Uh, but I also know that if, if, if I could have reacted the way I normally would if they weren't there, I would have literally screamed and, and crushed the damn thing. Um, so the fear of losing the respect of all these guys was greater than the fear of this long-standing arachnophobia. Isn't that interesting how there's one fear that could become bigger than an almighty fear, which was your fear of spiders? Yeah. The fear, of, it's almost like saving face or embarrassing yourself. Yeah, and it's rational thought. Yeah. If you're thinking, I'm going to lose their respect, you're thinking ahead of the, the, just the sheer fear factor. Mm-hmm. I find that really interesting when, I, when you relate it to the, the, the commercial world and business and about <clears throat> entrepreneurs trying to become successful in their careers or building businesses and inherent fears they have that they that they, you know, you, you got bitten by a spider, so I can understand where that fear came from. And, but people have fears of failure, or they have a fear of making a decision. So they become paralyzed, you know, paralysis from analysis, almost. And I find it's fascinating in the world of business how fear plays such a massive role. And that's why I was so interested in your book, 
because I think that a lot of it translates into into everyday commercial activities and business life for many people, but they don't see it that way. Does no. that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I've never been an intercommerce sort of thing, but I can understand that they would be frightened of uh, spending money on it to uh, make it big mm -hmm. and then end up with debts. And that is a frightening situation for anybody. Mm -hmm. mm. But some people even fear, some people get riddled with fear of the thought of having to go and, I don't know, network with a, a group of people in a room uh, because the, of the fear of their, what other people might think of them. Oh, yeah, I didn't, yeah. yeah and it's, and I've it's never entered into that sort yeah. of thing. But it's really um, interesting. The worst of all was one which the police stopped me writing in it. The Bristol. Uh -huh. um, people in my office on Exmoor said that there was this woman who would be very good for that particular book uh, in, interview, lived in Bristol. Um, and so eventually I got on to the woman and she said, yeah, she'd speak to me about her fear. And it had happened four years earlier when her husband had died. He was also like her, about 40 at the time. But she survived, and they were very happily married because they had a 14-year-old daughter who lived with her in Bristol in this flat. And one morning she hadn't heard the daughter getting going out for school. So she'd gone down to wake her up sort of thing and found she was hanged by her school tie on the knob of the door. If you can imagine that, her one thing in life, you know, very happy married uh -huh. mum and daughter relationship. And um, so why had she done that? And it, it was cyberbullying. So she told me all about cyberbullying and it was a wonderful chapter, if I say so myself, of fear. And um, then about a week before the, you close correction of the publish, the print, you know, your last chance to change the text. Yeah, yeah, editing. Yeah. Just in time, uh, the same people in my office rang up and said, hey, you can't use that whole chapter because the the, the, the trolls, are they called, mm -hmm. are now making such a big thing that they're saying that all the cyberbullying was secretly by her own mum. That, I, I know that was rubbish. I met this woman. I, uh -huh. I could see, you know, I, right in there. No way. No way, Jose. But the police had to react in such a way that they had to not have any publicity until they looked into it and all that including the book. So I wasn't able to do that one. But you, you that's, oh, that makes me so angry, that does. When you tell the story about the, the pianist that was in the boxing class, and so he was abused by his boxing coach, and how he became then a, a celebrated pianist, but the struggles that he had through his life, I have an awful lot of empathy when I when I feel what he must have been going through, and where do you find those types of stories? How, where do, where do, did... Yeah, I, I'd never done a book where I was interviewing people before, oh. uh, so I asked various friends um, in the publishing world how you set about finding them, and they came up with about forty six suggestions, so, and some of them got into the book. That's basically you know. what happened. Well, when you were hearing those stories, though, when people were telling you them, was... oh, it was fascinating. You know, I'd never done it before, I'd never done it since, but it, it was a very interesting thing to be involved with. Yeah, incredible. Now, from last count, correct me if this number's wrong or not. Seventeen million pounds you've raised. Eighteen point nine. 
18.9 million pounds you've raised for charity. And, and got stuck on it. Um, so it's become a, what do you call it? A um, stupid obsession, obsession <laughs> to get 20. I like the figure 20, 20 million. What can you do to get it? Well, we're plotting various things. Which and you can't talk if, about. If they become feasible, then we can go to the normal charities and saying we'll raise money for you. So you've got how, how many projects in the works at the moment? Well, it could be all three won't come to anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they, one's in British Columbia and two of them are in different parts of the Arctic. When you consider you did the Marathon de Saab, you did, was it seven, seven marathons in seven days and seven continents? Yeah, the Marathon de Saab was for a charity and that was um, my thinking. Uh-huh. The other thing, that seven thing, was totally Mike Stroud. Yeah, he said. I, you know, I couldn't say no because, you know, it's him. But um, I didn't like the idea because I'm not into marathons at that time. So you weren't into running long distances? No. How old were you when you did the Marathon de Saab? I think 73. <laughs> it's got no. to be the oldest person doing it, yeah? No, no, there were French people older than me. I'm sure. Really? I'm not, whether they finished or not, I don't know, but they, they certainly started. I've had friends that do it. I've got a friend of mine who's got Parkinson's and he does it. And he just... I have How long has he had Parkinson's for? Since he was um, 32. And he's now... Alex Flynn is his name. He's now, Alex is a year younger than me, so he's 48. So Parkinson's takes a long time to become bad. He, he uses the, the adventures as a way to cope with the Parkinson's. He doesn't use cannabis. Uh, no, he doesn't, no. Um, but because I know the latest cure yeah. for um, Parkinson's apparently is... Um, cannabis um, oil, isn't it? Or something? Yeah, you drop on your tongue. Yeah. It's plant-based. Yeah. Well, that's what I've heard anyway. Yeah, yeah, I've heard the same. And I've, I've heard of people who put, put it off 20 years by doing that. I've seen some videos on YouTube where there's people that have been, you know, extremely, um, the shakes. That's right. And they've given them the medication and it's calmed them down. So yeah. there's, there's was, was that some... the cannabis medication or not? Yeah, I think it was the cannabis. Right. It was called THB. Was it THB? I can't remember the initials. There's, there's three initials, right. but it's, yeah, it's cannabis-based um, oil that... Well, I started the tremors about six months ago, and so I went to a doctor eventually about a month ago <laughs> and got put in a sort of tube, whatever you call those, MRI. Uh, yeah, MRI uh, yeah. yeah. And they look at your brain and all that. And then you get a report afterwards which, which said, well, we, we can't be sure that the tremors can happen for all sorts of minor things as well, so we don't know. But if it is the, the first signs way back, um, you can now, we know, use cannabis drops, mm-hmm. either strong, medium, or low. Mm-hmm. What would you like to do? So I thought medium sounds reasonable. <laughs> I haven't started. but You haven't? No, but I, I will do. Yeah. When, when are you going to give it a go? Sorry? When are you going to give it a go? Well, I'm not, you know, I, don't, that, that I want to wait. Because I don't know that it is, it might not be, uh, I'm not terribly keen on starting. What do you like with medication overall? Are you the kind of person that, you know, if you've got a headache, you'll pop an aspirin, or you're one of these types of people that have uh, I've never done that, but when I had a double bypass uh, in um, uh, 2004 or three, three, 2003, yeah. 
double bypass and all that, and then three days on a life support machine. Mm -hmm. And um, after that, I had to take, like most people with heart attack, you have to take uh, aspirin a day, yeah, small yeah. doses of aspirin a day, a ramapril, which controls the fluttering, the, the rhythm, every day, and a statin, of course, every day. Mm. Um, that's it. Did the statins have any side, side effect? Yeah, the, everything has side effects. It makes your muscles ache, doesn't it? Yeah. I, not yet, in my case. But, but you're quite right. It's one of the things on the piece of paper. Yeah. yeah. So you've raised a huge amount of money for charity. You're known as one of the, or, or the greatest adventurer in a, a living no, adventure. No, no. In 1984, the Guinness Book of Records yeah. had the thing called the World Hall of Fame, uh -huh. and they chose certain categories. Uh -huh. And the world's greatest uh, living mu musician was based on the number of discs they'd sold. Okay. And it actually at that time was Paul McCartney. Uh -huh. The greatest sports person in the world was, guess who? 84? Um, in Great, terms of the greatest number of sports records in their sector. Would that be Cole, Cole Lewis? The no, someone called Billy Jean King. Oh, the tennis player. Yeah. Billy Jean King, okay. And the, 84? Yes. Yeah, okay, I was 14 and, then. And, and the greatest number of exploration records was me. So I, you can't say the world's greatest living explorer without adding Guinness Book of Records. Okay. Otherwise, I mean, you're the world's greatest magician, okay? <laughs> who says? Says who, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So when you look at all the things you've done over the years, what are you the most proud of? I think having a, a, a very happy, good working marriage for 38 years. Uh, I, know, I know you shouldn't be proud of luck, and I know that that is, of course, luck, but I'm still proud of it. And one last thing that you've spoken about before, in Oman you found that lost uh, city. Yeah. And it took you how many years? How many expeditions and how many years to find it? Is that 26, well, is it? either 25 or 26, depending on how you work it out. But say 25 years, during which we did eight expeditions, BP, Land Rover sponsorship, yeah. a lot of cost, uh, and sultanate permission, digging in religious areas and so on, knowing that we had a rival, not Norwegian, but German archaeologists, they're into it in a big way. And um, yeah, so to get sultanate permission rather than getting the Germans you know, that year, it was a lot of hard work. And after seven not finding it, you know, well, after five not finding it, I told Ginny I was not going to do it anymore, but she got very uppity and um, we carried on. And on the eighth search, we found it through luck. Was it down towards Salala or is it up in the north? Or? Well, it's, Salala is on the coast, as you know. Then you've got the mountains. Yeah. And then you've got the nedged gravel area. Uh -huh. Then the dunes start going right up into the Rubal Khali. Uh -huh. uh, and it, it, where we found it was in the sand dunes at a place called Shissa. S-H-I-S apostrophe R. Shissa. Which, this is nothing really to do with it back then, but... I had used on army patrols because it was the last most northerly water hole before the huge desert and the sand dunes. 
So militarily, I used that with the Land Rovers back in the 60s and so on. Um, and it just seemed to be a sensible place to use it because there was no more water further north. Or if there was, a Bedou would only know about it in the middle of nowhere and we'd never sort of find that sort of thing. I'm going to Antarctica uh, at the end of this year. What advice would you give someone who's lived in the Middle East for as long as I have and generally been around warm climates for as long as I have? I would say it depends on what you're doing when you get there. We're going to uh, Mount Vincent on Vincent Massif. Yeah, I found Mount Vincent a really nice, gentle walk that's not a climb. On the very last 100 metres, there's a little few boulders about, but you can skirt around them to get on the top. Very pleasant. You go at the right time of the year, the weather's not bad. It's not one of these places that's riven with storms all the time. And you might hit one, but we waited for three days in the advanced base camp and the cook tent uh, for groups, tourists and that. The cook tent, they dug into the snow yeah. to make out a big tub. And in the middle, they'd not dug it out. So it was a table of snow in the middle of this big stuff. So everybody can, all the tourists can sit round sort of thing. And um, then there's this big marquee tent thing with normal tent bars, you know. And while we were there, the wind blew it off. And um, some of the tourist tents, all of which were inside ice block things, you know, you cut out an ice block quite yeah. heavy. And that night, one of the ice blocks to protect the tent inside fell off and hit this tourist on the head and he was upset. And um, they didn't set out on that day. We waited three days and the weather got better and there was no problem. And then there is a, um, I think it's 2,000 foot rope, which you go up like that on your skis, you know. Yeah. So slowly. And uh, so we watched a well-known group leader with about six Americans going up. We were watching them through binoculars as they went up. And uh, you could see one of them falling off and sort of coming down, bouncing sort of thing, not drop. And um, it turned out to be a rucksack. But all the important things for this bloke fell out of the rucksack on the way down. <laughs> so um, that was upsetting. <laughs> so um, that delayed us a bit. But it was, it was easy and... Um, just very enjoyable. So I should enjoy it then. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. And that, uh, I really a, appreciate it more than anything. And I wish you luck yeah. in Southend-on-Sea when you go there. That's very kind. Thanks. <laughs> nice to meet you. Cheers. Cheers. Well, there you have it. The epic Serranov finds. Lots of stories, lots of adventures. A guy that's been there and back a thousand times to see that he's done so much. And he's in his 70s now and he's still got that same kind of mindset of wanting to go out to raise that much money for charity. Nearly 20 million pounds has been raised by, for charity by that guy. And uh, you know what? There's nothing going to stop him, is there? You can just see that. To talk about bullying, to talk about fear. Let's talk about bullying for a second. You know, bullying was something that, that affected me and Saranoff as a kid, but cyberbullying has taken over and cyberbullying is here in, in a vengeance. And to see that Saranoff really understood cyberbullying and the impact that it had on the youth of today and the work he was doing to try and eradicate it was really very special.
Look, if you enjoy this podcast and you're not yet subscribed, please, please subscribe. Please go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating, or to SoundCloud or Spotify or wherever you listen to this podcast. And please, please, please leave us some comments and let us know what you think of the show, if we can make it better for you, how we can improve it. But lastly, just a big thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show and look out for the next one.